It's Mr. Christopher with the Funkatopia Radio Show, and it is my honor to have online Mr. Darren D. Story of the one and only band from the 90s that y'all remember, Low Key. What's going on, buddy? <laughs> Thanks for the uh, intro, man. That was uh, full of energy. I appreciate oh, that, man. How are you? <laughs> Why wouldn't I? You know, uh, let me tell you, you know, so many people uh, don't realize the impact that the music from the 90s had. And I, I think that you were either in it or you weren't in it because there were very, very distinct factions of people that grew up in the 80s funk. And then you had that slight generation that came in after it that really was all about the 90s funk and the R&B. And you were right in the middle of it. And not just right yep. in the middle of it. I mean, when you guys came out and, and hit with, I got a thing for you, for ya. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I, I felt like, uh, I felt like, you know, yeah, that, that, there was there was little tinges of of of, of uh, a Minneapolis taste to it. I mean, and I don't think a lot of people realize your your background in 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 the Minneapolis story and in in the Prince story and all that. But there's so many things I want to talk about. I want to talk about you know Prince's involvement in in what you guys were doing, uh, including obviously the Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis uh, faction part of the story of it. Uh, as well as, you know, the times you met Prince, and of course, the most important, in my opinion, obviously, the most important part is talking about the regrouping of Loki and the tour that people are about to be able to experience. If they were into the 90s scene, they are about to get a healthy dose of that sound, and uh, so, so excited to hear about all that, but... Uh, you tell me where we, because we, I, I've got a list of things that I obviously right. want to talk to you about. So you tell me where you're the most comfortable and when you feel like th um, this is going to help you roll. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, uh, thank you for, again for having uh, sure. me on your show, man. I know you have a gazillion people that listen to you uh, all over the world. I just, uh, that's the crazy thing about the world we live in is that yeah. we can touch people all over the world. Um, and so uh, I'm very honored to be on your show. But, you know, we're putting it back together. Uh, you know, Loki never really broke up. We never, like, got mad at each other and said, screw you, you know, I hate you, I'm quit the band. We didn't have a, we didn't have a, you know, a new edition story. We weren't that quite that, that juicy or dramatic. But, um, you know, in 95, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. John, we probably would have been on Unsung by now if we had all of that going on. But, um, people love drama, but uh, yeah, we just we just kind of were inactive. We we lost our deal with Perspective in '95, and they released us, if you will. And um, you know, we just didn't do anything. And then in 2000, uh, we got a call from Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, the Honorable Congressman of Missouri, Emanuel Cleaver, who uh, T-Bone actually goes to his church in Kansas City and they wanted us to come and do this play for this political rally and we hadn't been together in six years or so and uh, so we were like okay why not and um, every time we get together it just seemed like we hadn't left each other 
You know, it was just everything fell right back into place. We did the show. It was awesome. And, and then, you know, okay, everybody felt good. But then another five years go by, we don't do it again. You know, and so 2005, we did another show. And then it took another five years before we did another show, 2010. And I think that was really, in 2010, we got together. We, we did a really big show actually here in Kansas City in our hometown. Uh, in front of about 10,000 people. Jeez. We were the only band. I mean, we were, it was just us. They, people came they? to see us. Uh, wow, and, that's impressive. Yeah, and uh, and we did that show, and man, we killed it. We killed it. And we started looking at each other like, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should keep going. Maybe we should keep going. Maybe we should figure out a way to keep doing this. And uh, did another show with Charlie Wilson, Gap Band, and, you know, we think we're going, and then and then it bogged down, you know. And I, I just think that, you know, uh, when you get to a certain point in your life, uh, you know, different things take priority. We all family men now. We all do different things. We have different interests. And um, I think the stars have to align. So I, I think some things had to happen uh, in the formation of all of this going on and I think we finally had to get to the point to where I think the, the fans were speaking to us uh, through uh, our limited social media uh, presence because we weren't really into it. We kind of had a presence but really we weren't doing anything And but then you start seeing these um, comments where, where they at? You know uh, uh, the greatest R&B band, underrated, most R underrated R&B band in the history of music, and I'm like, okay, that's a bit much, but, you know, uh, but you start, the fans start speaking to you via technology, via the internet, via social media, and it just keeps you keep tugging at you and tugging at you, and finally, I think probably in 2012, we finally got serious, and then, unfortunately, uh, Fortunately, we had a personnel change uh, where one of the co-founders, Lance, uh, was no longer with us anymore. And But that also, too, uh, was a big thing for us to figure out how do we go from there because he was a huge part of the band. And um, But finally, probably about a year ago, Chris, we finally actually looked at each other and said, you know, let's take one more swing at this. Let's see if we got another hit in us. Let's see if uh, if we can really do this. And and it started happening with us. It started with one song, and that's where we got back in the studio and we started singing and we get in the booth. We started hearing our voices blend with one another. We started collaborating with one another, and the magic started happening. And then you start feeling it, and then you start. The camaraderie comes back, and everything that that made made us who we were, uh, all of a sudden just resurfaced, and then it, everything felt very familiar again. And that was like, okay, we're back, you know. So uh, that was Memorial Day of last year, and since then, you know, we've made a ton of progress, obviously, and of course, we're going up. You know, one of the biggest things was committing to do a, a, a gig in Europe because you can't be fragmented. You can't, like, say you're going to go to Europe and play or the UK if you're not ready to go, right? You know, you have to be ready to do this. And 
that was a huge commitment for us because it was kind of like, okay, we're doing more than sticking our toe in the water. We're actually ready to commit and do this thing the way we know we can do it. Uh, but I think, you know, there's probably a lot of fear. You know, I mean, like I said, it's been 20, oh, 23 years, 24 years since we had a record out, you know. And, so is it, are we talking uh, about new material? Today. Are we talking about new material here now, or what's... New material, yeah. New uh, material, yeah. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, we actually put a moratorium on performing uh, be, until we had new material ready to play live or have out in the marketplace because we really didn't want to be that group that just wanted to live off of their past stuff Let's see if we can do something new. We know that the people love our old stuff, and and God bless them. And, and wow, I mean, we appreciate that. But I think too, we we owe our fans some new stuff. We we owe them a new taste of what we are and and how we might have evolved musically because we're not the same people we were, uh, you know, 20, 23, 24 years ago. So. Um, you know, we, we owe our fans that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with anybody going out there and playing all their hits, but there's also the the the, the understanding too that us, unlike unlike Prince, who had like 48 albums or whatever it was he had, you know. So I mean, so Prince could like go anyways, do a show, right. <laughs> could go do a show and do a show on each one of his albums and do you know 48 different shows or whatever that is. But we had two albums, and so. You know, and we had two albums and probably about five really solid hits. But the thing is about our fans is that they really got into our album. And that was really a cool thing because we actually, like, cared about an album. Like, what can we put together in its totality that when you put it on, it's kind of like, you know, when we were kids and we'd go get the new Earth, Wind & Fire record or the new Cameo record or the new Prince record. You just drop the needle on it and you just let it go. You don't have to worry about jumping to the next thing. And that's really what we tried to do whenever we were putting together a complete project is that like once you put it in, well, okay, hold on. set it. Well, now hold on, because it's not the case, because you had to go over, then you had to pick up the vinyl, and then you had to turn it over. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> So, that's true. So, that's so, right. so there is some truth to it. itself and start over on that same side, right? <laughs> Make no <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so, yeah, they, we had to get up and exercise back then and uh, change our music. So, and now they just pop yeah. it in, you know. So, anyway, we're excited about that and uh, we're excited about uh, just our sound is going to be the same but different. That makes any sense. I mean, it's going to be uh, very familiar. I think our fans are going to be like, "Yeah, that's low key, but we got a little thing on it." You know, something that brings us into 2018, but without bastardizing what we were. And, and, and I'm sure people uh, they 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 have uh, a familiarity with us. You know, with our with Prof T on certain vocals, and then Dre, our lead singer. You know, when they hear those voices together, like, I got a thing to you, how they traded it off on that song, that's something that people have come become accustomed to. So we're not going to get rid of that, but I think sonically we're going to be doing some things that are going to fit right in, that if you heard our song on the radio, you know, it sounds like it's supposed to be there. Right. So let's go back, though, because 
a lot of people that you know remember you know uh you know the hey there pretty lady and i got a thing for you and you know the people that remember all those you've got um a scenario where a lot of people don't or weren't even aware of the story about how you got involved with prince and how you know your career started and uh you know we talked previously before you know when you were playing at first, first avenue and and some of these really great stories so let's kind of go back to back to the beginning pre-signing and actually kind of get a little bit of um a little bit of story kind of the, the right. minneapolis tinge if you will well uh all of us are from kansas city missouri originally um except for one dre he's from st louis but uh, in 1986, um, I actually got to go back further because uh, in 1985, uh, Lance Alexander, one of our co-founders, actually started traveling to Minnesota, to Minneapolis, and he actually started working with Sue Ann Carwell, if you remember Sue Ann, uh, obviously, and, and uh, Buki, we call her Buki, uh, but... Uh, uh, he started kind of getting to know people in the business in Minneapolis. And then the next year, I was, my, me and Prof T were in a rival band. And then there was another called Destiny. And then there was this other band, Grand Jury, that we had all been in. I, I had been in that band before. But eventually, um, in 86, there was kind of a meeting of the minds that Grand Jury had some holes that me and Prof T could fill. Uh, I was going back home to the original band that I started in back when I was 14 years old. And so the, the thing was, Lance was like, hey, man, I think we could go to Minneapolis and make some noise. And it was only 450 miles right up I-35. So it wasn't like moving to California or New York. So it wasn't nearly as daunting because we, if, if things just got bad, we'd just jump in our raggedy hoopties and come on back home. Uh, so we got in our cars. A uh, really good friend of mine, uh, William Counts, uh, who lived in St. Paul, uh, agreed to let us live in his house, all 10 of us, because we were a little bit different than them. Yeah, so we were kind of a, you know, cameo, earth, wind, and fire type band. Um, the Minneapolis bands were like, like, all of them were like the revolution, you know, they had the front man, and then they had you know, four band members, you know, right. and, or they were like the time, you know, everybody was configured the same way. When we rolled in here, uh, I can remember this very vividly. We were opening for Midnight Star at First Avenue and we were, uh, we were back in the back, uh, listening for sound check and our drummer was doing his check and he was doing his kick drum, boop, 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 whatever. And so we're back there listening and these cats walk in behind us and they look, they look up on the stage and they're like, man, who these cats think they are? Earth, Wind & Fire? Because we had like horns up there. It was like all these instruments. I mean, we, we look like, it looked like Parliament Funkadelic was about to play because we were just so big. We had like this front line of singers, two horn players, two, two keyboard players, drummer, guitar, I mean, we were just, it was just incredible. Well, hold, so, on, well, hold on a second, you got, I mean, that's how you, that's how you were the opening act, so, because Midnight Star wasn't, how big was Midnight Star? They weren't that big, were they? They were, Midnight Star was smaller than us. I think they were about seven. They were about, about seven. seven. <laughs> I mean, uh, Callaway so, Brothers. So you we as the bigger, opening We were band. bigger than they were. So you as the opening <laughs> band come out. 
<laughs> this huge right. production. Yeah, I know. I never thought about that. We were bigger than Midnight Star. <laughs> they had hits. Okay. You know? All right, go ahead. So, um, so yeah, so we decided to move to Minneapolis and, and just to see, just to start playing in clubs, man. It was real simple. And uh, my friend William had a friend. His name was Todd Hunter, He's but he's also known as DJ Cowboy from Minneapolis. And DJ Cowboy actually, you know, was spinning back in the day. And, and DJ Cowboy was one of those DJs that Prince used to, like, hey, man, get in the car, get in his BMW, and, and I want you to listen to this and say, hey, I, I wonder, what do you think they're going to do? think they're going to dance to this, you know? Or Cowboy was the guy that's, that Prince would give, you know, something to and say, hey, play this in the club, just kind of mix it in and see what happens, you know? And so um, right away, we... Kid up, end up with a connection to Prince with DJ Cowboy, who became our manager. And oh, uh, so, be, because of that, we were able to get main stage at First Avenue a lot faster than most bands did. And, and you know, there was a lot of junk because we were out of towners. We were not, you know, we were so different than everybody up there. You know, we didn't wear makeup and eyeliner. But, well, actually, we started wearing makeup and eyeliner once we got there. <laughs> you have to go to Minneapolis. <laughs> once you get to Minneapolis, you kind of got to do what the Romans do, right? That's right. The Rome, what the Romans do. That's so, right. yeah, we broke out the eyeliner and, the, you know, the long, dangly earrings and everything we could to fit in. Uh, because we were so... We were so different as a band, right? We right. were so different as a band. We were very much like the bands you saw coming from like Ohio, right? You know, the big bands, you know, funk bands or horn sections. We were so different than that. We looked more like the MPG than we did the Revolution uh, yeah. when it came to that kind of stuff. So, you know, that was uh, that was our our entree in the, in the in the Minnesota man. And and Chris, man, the first time we went to First Avenue just to see what it was like. We weren't playing or anything. We just that was like bucket list thing number one. Let's go to First Avenue, Thursday night, more funk night. That's when everybody's there. We get there, and we're not there probably 15, 20 minutes, and here he comes. He's walking in the door. First thing we see is Gilbert, his bodyguard, who's a tree. And he walks in, and and we, we knew, and the sea kind of parted, like people, like the Red Sea parted, and here comes Prince. And, he walks, we, everybody gets out of his way, finds this little railing to park for a while, and he's just standing there looking cool, right? And he, this is, this is when, uh, Under the Cherry Moon was out, uh, so he was in his, this is when he was wearing suits, right? He had that, he was going through that suit and tie thing, you know? Yeah. And so he had on a black suit, big shoulder pads, white tie, uh, clean, clean, and, uh, uh, we're kind of just staring at him in awe, as anyone would if you've seen him for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and so this guy, Marcus, in our band, who was extremely bold, and you got to have a guy in your band like that. I just think that a band has certain personalities. You need to have people in your personality in, in your band. Have You need quiet guys, but you need the guy that's going to go where angels fear to tread. He's like, let's go over and talk to him. He's like, what? No, man, don't do that. We're going to get killed. And... He starts walking over there, and we follow him like the, like he's the Pied Piper. And uh, he sticks his hand out to, like, shake Prince's hand, and then Gilbert stands in front of him like, whoa, what you doing, man? Are you crazy? I'm about to pulverize you. 
And then Prince kind of comes in from behind Gilbert, like, because Gilbert kind of stood in front of him to shield him. And he, he looks around at us and he comes out and he says, you guys are banned? And we're like, and we just freeze. Like, we just, our mouths are open. If you can picture, <laughs> you know, 10 black dudes with their mouths open at one time <laughs> with jerry curls, picture that. Okay, so <laughs> that's... Okay, that's what, frozen that's image, got it. Yeah, so <laughs> he says, you guys are banned. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're a band. We're, 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 we're Grand Jury. We're, our name of our band's Grand Jury. And, you know, we're stuttering and people are like, Marcus said, said you guys aren't from here, are you? He knew that right up front. I mean, he yeah. could tell yeah. we were not from Minneapolis. He peeped that, I think, from like very second. He said, you guys aren't from here, are you? He said, no. He said, well, I'm going to be watching out for you guys. And I'm like what you know and we're just like ah you just you just and now we can just die right now nothing we don't need to do nothing else but just die right now um but he was really cool you know and and i didn't say much but but uh but because i knew we what a homer he was and and how in touch he was with the music scene in that town you could you, you know later on you found out you could trust it and so there's a story of, of that goes along parallel with this is that our, as I told you, our manager was uh, Todd Hunter, DJ Cowboy, and he brought a little piece of music to our rehearsal space. And we rehearsed down on Washington Avenue in downtown Minneapolis. And um, it was just about, I don't know, maybe a minute, minute and a half of this groove. It was just a groove, nothing, no words, no nothing. And he played it for us, he popped the tape in, he played it for us. We were like, man, that's funky. You know, he's like, man, I want you to learn that. I want you to learn that. I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, just learn it, just learn it, you know? So kind of one of those managers move. Hey, just do what I say. Just learn the song and shut up, okay? And so we learned the song and we had this gig coming up at First Avenue. And it was actually, um, we were playing along with another band called Vision which ended up becoming the crash. Yeah, I remember Jesse, Jesse Johnson. Johnson yeah, Jesse Johnson band, yeah. Right. So Vision was from St. Louis. We were from Kansas City. We were all in Minneapolis. Going, what was that song? You know, what was that song? Wasn't that good to you? Wasn't yep, that yep. good? Yeah. It is. It is. <laughs> you know? So, uh, Love so it's, right, a, it's a small world, right? Yeah. You know, because we had played against Vision just a couple of years earlier in another talent show and they got our ass good, man. I mean, they took us out. I mean, we were good, but they were really, really good. And so we were on the same stage with them. And so this was our opportunity to get them back. Uh, Cause that's the, you know, that's how bands do, you know, everything's a competition. So, um, so we get end up playing this, this groove right through the, probably near the end of the show actually. And, if I remember correctly, but we're playing it and we just kind of added our own dance moves and we kind of made up some little cheeky lines that we sang just so it just wouldn't be playing some instrumental thing. And um, and I think we did some crowd participation stuff, you know, where people could say something back to us or whatever. So we're just playing it. I mean, it sounds amazing. And, you know, uh, I'm on stage and I look to my right stage, right? My stage, right? And I see this guy in the wings bobbing his head to the music, like, you know, that's funky, you know? And it's Prince. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Prince. 
And I had, you know, I had to do a double take, right? Because it's like, no, that, that, that. And then I'd start freaking out a little bit. And I'm trying to get everybody's attention on stage, which was probably not the right thing to do if I look back. If I, if I had to do it over again, I probably would just been chill, been like, okay, let's just jam. But I freaked out. And I was trying to tell people, that's Prince, that's effing Prince, man. Prince is here listening to us now, right now. You know, and, and yeah. you know, it's crazy. And we, we're doing the song, and we do the rest of the show, and we come off stage, and there he is, and, and we walk down, and Cowboy's there, and we walk off the stage, and he looks at us, and he says, you're lucky it sounded good. And at first, we didn't really know what it meant. Well, what it was is that Cowboy had given us a piece of Housequake, just an instrumental version of Housequake. Yeah. And we learned Housequake before Housequake was even out. Like, this is before he had dropped. I mean, Sign of the Times hadn't even been dropped as a single yet. This is way early, way early. I mean, no one even knew Housequake existed. And, 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 you know, obviously that told me something about his relationship with Cowboy, you know, because he's like, he obviously engineered all that, right? Like he wanted, he wanted Prince to hear us, right? You know, and we did. And he's like, I'll never forget that. So you're lucky it sounded good. Then he just disappeared. That's a, that's an exaggeration, but he just walked away, you know, but, but it seemed like he disappeared. Like, can you, can <laughs> you like wrap so your funny. head around the fact that the fact that Prince created a song that is a huge hit for him. I mean, not like radio hit, but but is it's a huge what, hit. What, I mean, what is huge yeah, it's hit? A huge, it's a huge, huge hit. And before it was even a song, he put this song on a cassette tape, gave it to your manager, and mm-hmm. you got the opportunity to, for the first time, technically perform that song live, even before Prince. Before he did. Even before Prince did it. Yeah. How do you think that you would have reacted knowing if you knew that that was... Do you think that you probably would have played it differently or approached it differently? Do you think that it would have been more daunting to you to if, if you had known all, all that, that time? All of, all, all of that. All of that. I think all of that. I think that when, especially when you're young, you know, you. I think we probably would have overthought it. Right. You know? When when we when we thought it was just a piece of a funky groove, and it was just about execution, you know, like oh we we can play this, and you know we put some other stuff with it or whatever, and just kind of got creative with it. But I, I think that had we known, and and Cowboy, you know, his infinite wisdom, he knew better than to tell us, hey man, this is a Prince song, y'all y'all should learn it, you know, that would have been that would have just been stupid to tell us that and we would have overthought it we probably wouldn't have executed it and then of course knowing if we had known he was going to be there oh god i just we weren't ready for that uh we were we were we were really good especially and we were young we were really young i mean we were just all of us most of us were in between you know 17 and 20 21 um and we, we were really good, but I don't know if we would have been that good knowing all of that information. I'm not sure if we he could have trusted us with that to be able to execute it the way we did. We were just playing a song and it just like not even thinking about it. And that's why I think it came off the way it came off. And I think that's the way Prince 
uh, felt us, you know, vibing with it. Like they just out there, they just out there grooving, you know. So we weren't thinking about all that other stuff, you know. Well, you know, at some point in time, from what I understand, from what I was told, there was some person that worked at First Avenue was that almost every single show that was ever recorded, ever done at First Avenue, was recorded. So somewhere, somewhere, <laughs> there is a recording. Of I would you pay guys money for that. Jamming. Oh yeah, I would pay. I would pay money for that. Somewhere I would pay real there, money for well, and this, that's that goes for Prince too. I mean, Prince recorded yeah. everything, but if he had any type of involvement in anything, it was almost definitive that it was going to be recorded. So somewhere there is a recording yeah. of that. Absolutely. I do know that when we opened for Midnight Star, that show got recorded because we actually had a copy of that. I don't know where that is anymore. I think Cowboy actually got a copy of that. But I do know you are right. That was, that is an actual fact that tape was rolling at First Avenue on everything. I mean, yes. everything. I mean, I can't imagine. That's That could be a, that could, you know, I don't know what kind of business that could be for them. But I know God only knows what they have on tape and what's in the vault there. Uh, you I keep mean, seeing the print half. stuff. Yeah, the print stuff has been slowly kind of been leaking out, and uh, yeah. so that's, that's always been good. So how do you get from there to the signed, low-key R&B right. act that the world knows and loves? And Yeah, well, I mean, just like every other band story, a band has to break up. <laughs> you know, a band, <laughs> band, band breaks up, right? Not every time. So, so Grand Jury broke up uh, and. um late 87 mid to late 87 and um, you know we went our separate ways and guys started doing other things and me, Lance and Prof T started doing some stuff and we, we were thinking about being a group I just ran across some old photo booth pictures we took to as a as our group pictures, we got in a photo booth and we took group pictures to for our uh, promo pack, our EPK. Mm. Man, that was terrible. I mean, in uh, the photo booth, the photo booth, man. That's how poor we were. Uh, so that's that's as good as it gets for you guys. Just go to the photo booth. Hey, the three, you do three. you you work with what you got. Work what you got. You, you go in and five dollars in the photo booth and get ten pictures or whatever it was back then. And let's hope we have one that's the money shot. Uh, yes. You know, after squeezing in three three grown men squeezing into a photo booth, uh, so somebody probably thought something was wrong with that. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we did that and we were started being a group, and then it kind of morphed into. Let's not do the group thing. Let's just start writing and producing maybe for other people. And so it was the three of us were working together. And then eventually what happened was for me, I ended up getting married. So I ended up moving back to Kansas City. Prof and Lance kept going. And then, you know, the, the story is uh, at a music convention, a music seminar, Jimmy Jam was on the panel and, and Lance, who is another type A guy that'll stand up and blurt out anything. And like I said, you need guys like that in your, on your team. He, he asked Jimmy Jam, he said, how do I get one of those flight time jackets? <laughs> and so Jimmy Jam said, well, you get, a, you get a flight time jacket by, you know, you know, writing some songs, having some hits. So he basically, so uh, he sent them to tape in. And 
all credit needs to go to Sonya Cates, who was the A&R person for Flight Time back then. When she got Prof and Lance's uh, demo tape, production tape, she listened to it. And she bugged the crap out of Jimmy and Terry for, I, I think, a, Legend has it, maybe two or three weeks before they finally, like, okay, Sonya, we'll listen to it. And when they finally listened to it, they immediately called them and said, hey, we want to bring y'all up here. And so the first part of the low-key story, the second, the next part of the low-key story starts with Prop and Lance getting signed as staff writers and producers with Flight Time Productions, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And, of course, you know, Prince began the time. The time began Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. You know, and then Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis begets Prof and Lance, and then they begat Low Key. And probably about a, after, a, I don't know, maybe close to a year of them working up there, they had done some stuff on Karen White and Alexander O'Neill. They did that song, uh, Love Makes No Sense, on Alexander O'Neill's record, which was a really good song, really. I think that did pretty good. Um, and, and then Terry asked the guys, hey, man, do you want to put together your band again because they knew we had a band back in the day they knew about grand jury uh kind of through the through the minneapolis you know grapevine music grapevine as you know i mean everybody kind of knows what's going on who's who's good who's not so good and and, and whatever uh so <laughs> you know uh, uh so they knew about that we had a band at one time you know so uh they said why don't y'all put something you know, we don't, we don't, not going to do 10, 11 people, but let's do something a little more manageable, like, you know, like five. And, and so, uh, T-Bone, our bass player got the call, Dre, who, like I said, kind of came from St. Louis, but he was one of the guys that was singing on some of the stuff on the demo tape that Jimmy and Terry heard. So they heard Dre's voice and Dre, uh, they used to call Dre the secret weapon because, because uh, he was um, such an amazing vocalist and like no one we had ever heard before and so and then I got the call and then so that's low-key was born and you know I, I just ran across I put it on my Instagram I ran across the the itinerary that Sue Owen sent to me uh, and it was dated uh, November 11 1990 where it was saying this is my plane my, my flight itinerary where we were staying where to pick up our rental car to start working on our record uh, and yeah. the paper is brown chris it's brown that's how old it is it's, it's turned well, brown two questions <laughs> two questions where, where does the name low key come from and 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 also why the question mark <laughs> Ah, okay. Well, that's a good question. We used to have to answer that question all the time, so I'm very well versed at answering this question. Okay, so the, the name Low Key really came from uh, us sitting in the basement, and what would we call ourselves? And, you know, Low Key would be cool, but then Prop said, well, we, Low Key is, we're not Low Key, so that wouldn't, that doesn't make any sense because we're the furthest thing from being low key hence the question mark so it creates this paradoxical thing, you know, so low key, y'all ain't low key I get it, you know, so so that's why the question mark can't go anywhere So because people have asked us, well can't you drop the question mark it's like, no we really can't I mean it's, that's really woven into the meaning of our name and where it came from, so it created this paradox 
the question mark and some people go low key like no it's, we're not really asking a question we're just really it's more it, it, it creates that paradox it's not so you can say our name low key just like anything else but the, the question mark asks the question like well you guys got low key like, right that's, that's exactly it so that's how we got the question mark right so the second question is you get the call mm-hmm. you're at this point pretty newly married yeah, I am. How do, how do you explain it to your wife? Oh, hey, I know we just settled in here to Kansas City. I got well, some news for you. <laughs> that was that was an interesting conversation, but uh, it, it 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 wasn't a surprise to her because, um, and this is my first wife. Um, the first date I took her on was to a gig. <laughs> so Got she it, knew man. from day one. Got it, yes, yes, yes. So it's, 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 it's the same thing with my wife. Yeah. It's like she, the when we met, I was doing the band thing, so she knew, she knew she was marrying a musician, so she <laughs> had a pretty good idea as to what was going on. Uh, yep. All right. So so now you so now you've gone up there. You, you you've created the album, and uh, well, we'll we'll kind of fast forward a little bit through that, but. Sure. Um, so how do you guys, you know, start touring? What, you know, who, who are you, are you now opening for, you know, what, what type of acts? And we're talking about the well, 90s actually, here. Actually, so. the, the first tour we went on, we went on tour with the Sounds of Blackness. Ah, that's a good, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, 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 we, uh, that was, our first tour um, was a, a black, uh, historically black college tour, you know, and so we went to Grambling and, Oh God, we went to all Tuskegee, all the historical black colleges and universities with the sounds of blackness. And it was it was it was amazing. You know, that was what we did first. And you know, Jimmy and Terry kinda had this, you know, kind of Motown uh, you know, idea of how we should break acts. Let's put them on the road. Let's get them out there touching the people, playing for the people. And so it was kind of very reminiscent of what Barry Gordy did with the Motown Review. Mm-hmm. And so we went out with the Sounds of Blackness, uh, you know, and then eventually we went out again on our own. Mint was out uh, doing their thing. And so, and, and 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 it did speak to our strength because that's where we all came from. We, we were not in our basement writing songs first and then we morphed into a live act. We were playing live from the very beginning that's how we got started just like just like prince and morris and, and and jimmy and terry and their bands that they had alex and their bands that's where you started i mean let's yeah. we we playing somebody else's songs and we rocking the house right so uh so it was very natural for us to get back there and and do it this way because really that was really where we were probably most comfortable at that point in our career especially because you know the whole studio thing, whole all that was still relatively new, uh, but being on stage, well, that was that was no big deal at all. And when and when did it break? So we're talking. Well, the first hit is. Um... Well, you know, we had Shawanda, right? You remember the song Shawanda, the Shawanda story. There's a little story I've got to tell. It's about a girl and Shawanda Bell. You know, so uh, so that song. They were, that was our first single, and a lot of times people forget about that song because it didn't really do much. Yeah, but it's kind of a, like one of those cult hits, right? It's like everybody knows the song, but nobody knew it enough to go buy it, right? So when it was time, 
it's kind of like, could you have bought it? I know you love this because people love the song, right? We play it in our live show. Still to this day, we play Shawanda and everybody knows Shawanda. I'm like, okay, why didn't you go buy it? That's always my question. Uh, you should have went and bought it, right? But everybody loves the song. So we dropped that in the summer of 91 while we were on tour. And we did a video and everything to it, man. And, and uh, but it was a all-star. Uh, and uh, I think that's one of the things, but it became, it became this underground cult thing that people love the song, but just didn't love it enough to go buy it. Um, so we had to reset and uh, figure out what song was next. And, and I think it was, it was a foregone conclusion that I Gotta Thank You was going to be the next single. That, I mean, Terry, I remember Terry vehemently being like, that's a hit. That one right there, that's a hit. Yes, that one right there, that's a hit. You know, so, um, and uh, doing his Terry Lewis thing. And, uh, you know, um, so we waited a while and then Thank You came out. I think it got released, oh, spring, late spring. And so we were on the road tour, you know, we were, we were, we were playing it. So we're, we're barnstorming in the town and that song is on the radio, we're playing and, uh, and we had to work that record because Tony Braxton had just came onto the scene and she came in with bringing guns a blazing. Yes, she did. You know, oh, Boomerang, had yep. Boomerang soundtrack. And so we got caught up in all of that, right? Our song was climbing while that soundtrack was killing everyone. Everything in his path. You yeah. know, Babyface on LA and Babyface on yeah. Yeah, fire. LaFace, LaFace was a force to be working with. Yes, absolutely. It's like everything TLC, it, it was all happening while we're trying to get our little record up the charts. And I really say to this day, I think uh, I think I could speak for everybody that had we just sat back and not did anything, or maybe just done some little promotional tours or something like that, and not actually been on the road, connecting with the people, you know, uh, doing it live. I, I don't think that record. I don't think the record goes number one. I, I, matter of fact, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't. So. We work it, and, and the, re the reason why I know it does is because unlike most records, that record stayed on the chart for 16 weeks before it went number one. That's unheard of. Normally, once you get inside seven, eight weeks, and your record has probably peaked at that point, and for us to have kept that thing kind of chugging up the charts like it did, was I think because of, of the fact that when we would leave a market, record sales go up. It was just that way, you know, record sales go up, airplay goes up. So we just kept going. And it was a very old school 1965 way of working a record, but it was successful. But Tony Braxton, the, the day we went number one, Tony Braxton was right there at number two. <laughs> Love should have brought you home last night. And she came back the next week and knocked us out of number one just that fast. <laughs> but hey, you know hey, what? At least okay. you were in the front. Yep, that's okay. I, I look, number one is number one. You so, know, so we're so, in a very small fraternity. 
All right, so let's bring it into 2018. Um, You're touring. So there's a a tour that's going to be happening. What's going to be happening over in Europe? What's going to be happening in, uh, you know, what's going to be happening with the potential of coming into the States? What's all, what's what's the story? The The tour is still taking shape. We have about three promoters now working and one of the things that that uh we're we're really excited about is that the promoters and everybody the 90s groups are really what's what people want to see and want to hear you know so we're right there where we need to be i mean uh you know so just got a call yesterday i guess last week chris promoter who's working with ready for the world the tonys and troop, you know, uh, I would love to do something with the Tonys. I mean, because they're, they're they're like they were like our band crush when we were we were in the business and we were crushing on them uh, as a band because we had so much respect for them and, and listened to their music and just like man, how come we didn't think of that song? You know, like I remember listening to their whole record while we're standing while, while we're in traffic on the 405 when uh, when uh, uh, Sons of Soul came out. I was just like. This yep. is a masterpiece. Yep. I was working part time at a record store, and they had that album on rotation, and and, okay. and it was just—it's a masterpiece. Yeah. It yeah. is an absolute Raphael, masterpiece. Raphael is no joke. Yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> masterpiece. And so, and which really, I'm really excited that he's he's back with them. So yeah, that's because what you can't—he's—he's he's the sound, he's the tone. Right. There, there's yeah. nobody has that vocal tone that. that no. No, it's no not, you can't really. It's it's this. Nobody has the tone that he has. It's just no. impossible. Just can't. So can't. so yeah. so what we're looking for, we're looking for a tour that's going to be happening with with you guys, and hopefully some of these acts or yeah some yeah good. You know, there's a lot of like I said, we got three. There's some festivals that we're about to get on, and, and I wish I could disclose like dates and everything, but they haven't given us dates. But I can't tell you, uh, you know, places like Atlanta, Houston, uh, Dallas. Um, uh, Charleston, West Virginia, <laughs> yes. yeah. which you know, I mean, we were real. Uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Pensacola, Florida, and we were big in the South. I mean, we were we were actually. Uh, if there was a region in the United States that that really we resonated with everything that we did, I don't know if it's because of that all girl, you know, but that's. That the South, the South loved us, you know, and so we love the South. So, um, but of course, Minneapolis, our hometowns, Minneapolis and Kansas City, uh, as well. Uh, so I, I think that once we come back from London, uh, that stuff is going to start falling, falling into place because the the thing that we're coming up against, and which I totally understand, is that uh, the promoters are really would rather have us get us going once we get back from England rather than getting us going before, right before we go, and then there'll be that break. And then, so I think that's what the, that's what the holdup is. But uh, those are just some of the cities that, that we're looking forward to coming into. And then, like I said, you know, these other 90s groups, uh, like I said, the Tonys, and uh, there's Troop, and, you know, SWV, and, and, and Bose. Uh, all those names are being circled around us joining forces with them and doing doing a lot of these a lot of these 90 shows and what can if somebody wanted to be able to kind of keep track of this and, and stay up to date on what's going on where can they go what what's where do they tune in at well I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you I mean okay they can they can go to our Facebook page 
which if you go on Facebook, you just put L O dash K E Y question mark and you can find us. So go like our page there. We put that's where we're most active. We are just getting Instagram and Twitter going, and that's a laborious task to get those things going uh, right now. But Facebook is where you get most of our information. And our website will be up probably within the next 30 days, and that's lo-key.com. You know, so people will be able to get there. And even if you're if you're a promoter or something like that, you'll be able to get our EPK there. Uh, we'll have a calendar of dates. Uh, we, you can opt in to email as well. Uh, we are going to be pre-selling our single and our EP coming up in the next 45 to 60 days as well so if you buy a pre-sale if you buy that we're also going to throw in you know, t-shirts autographed pictures all kinds of stuff and there'll be different different packages that you can buy to get stuff from us uh as well as a hard cd copy as well as a digital download of that music so uh, we, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon uh and all that stuff will live on our website low-key uh, low-key.com Well, I, I I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you taking the time and, and letting people know oh, what's man, coming up. I appreciate up. you. What are you talking about? Oh, I appreciate man. you. See, I can't exist without having information to be able to share and distribute and to kind of support you guys. I mean, this is this is what it's all about. It's all about the artist. It's all about the music and it's keeping this stuff alive. Keeping the R&B and the soul and the funk and I mean, that's that's pretty much the only reason why Funkatopia exists is to make sure that we at least try to establish some type of foundation to make sure that we don't experience these blocks of time where nothing's on the radio that's worth listening to. And, you know, it's funny. It's even the stuff where, and people aren't connecting it. You know, people aren't understanding that all the music that is on the charts right now is complete revisits and rehashes and reincarnations of the music. I mean, Bruno Mars' new album, yeah. the entire new album, is literally a musical journey from the sounds of the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Yeah. And it's Absolutely. just the, the, the way that it's all laid out the way the structure of it same thing with justin timberlake's new album what did you think about the uh super bowl performance and the uh prince tribute and all that you know um i feel like that justin actually got it right i i yeah. this is my feeling because even when bruno did his thing last year at the grammys I mean, it was cool, and, and Bruno is probably the closest thing person that could come to truly uh, paying homage to Prince, musically, vocally, and everything. Yeah, but still, but, but still, I feel like that Prince is so he he the the when the mold was truly broken, right? When this when he was created, and. It was, it was appropriate for Prince in his hometown in front of Minneapolis in the world that he was the one singing and it's not someone else. He was the one giving the representation because I was, when it first came out, I, I had, I was like, that's the, that, those are the vocal stems. That's Prince singing. That's not, and you know, that's not, you know, this is him singing. And I've always felt that way. It's like, you know, 
and then to make him larger than life, I thought that that was also appropriate because that's what he was. I mean, even though we know physically his stature was not that, but when he walked into a room, his presence was larger than life. And I thought that Justin just kind of him singing around what Prince was doing, singing around Prince's lead, just kind of adding a little something to it was totally appropriate. Didn't try to over, he wanted, he wanted Prince to have that moment, that minute and 32 seconds or whatever it was, I thought was, I thought was, I thought was fabulous. And that, anybody had any problems with it? I know if they were talking about the whole, um, uh, I guess, uh, what's that hologram thing? And I, yeah, I remember well, when they did that with Michael Jackson, that was kind of creepy. Uh, not a fan of that. Uh, but uh, I thought what happened at the actual Super Bowl and basically just let Prince be Prince, even in this situation. It literally was the exact same, from what I, from what I heard, it literally was the exact same prop that Prince used when he did the Super Bowl performance Super Bowl. when he was doing the guitar thing yep. and the blanket blew up. So, yep. um, yeah, I got nothing but mad props for all of those artists nowadays that are keeping me. Well, I mean, I going down the list of you know Justin Timberlake and Bilal and and Bruno Mars and and Van Hunt and all these fantastic artists that are just kind of keeping this keeping the sound alive. I am just as humble. You know, twenty some years later, uh, by when someone says, "I love your music," or "That was my favorite song," and and this is not a joke. Uh, this is true. I, I was at my son's basketball game, and a friend of mine's cousin said, "Man, that song Sweet on You' was my uncle's favorite song." I'm like, well, man, that's I appreciate that. He said, no, dude, it was his favorite song. We played it at his funeral. And I was just like, and I don't, what do you say to that, right? I mean, there's nothing you yeah. can say. To, it's only thank you. That's all I can say is thank you. And 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 that is really one of the gifts of, of doing this doing this thing we call music that people say things to you like, cause just when you're thinking you're ready to, you know, I don't, you know, throw it all away and say, screw this, I don't wanna do this anymore. Somebody tells you that and it's just like, okay. And it just resets you, right? It's like, now I know why we do what we do because it, we're just trying to give a gift. You know, each and every time we open our mouth or play a note, we're just trying to give a gift and leave something behind. And and when someone tells you that that was their first dance at their wedding and, you know, all that stuff, I mean, and, and you just can't put a value on that. And so that this this is for everything we do now is, is not is really more about saying thank you than because we could have got left behind and nobody could have cared, you know, 25 years later that people still care that and they still want to hear from us. And so for this, whatever we do going forward, we say thank you. Well, they will have an opportunity to be able to shake your hand and you'll be able to have an opportunity to shake their hand as well when you mm-hmm. come out on tour. Can't wait. Be sure that when you come into Atlanta, you definitely let me know that you're going to be here so I can be at the show. You will be you will be have backstage pass, my brother. Oh, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you once again, Darren Van. I can't even... Uh, can't tell you enough, man, and we look forward to seeing you on the road and hearing that new stuff. Thanks again, man.
You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>